Good morning, Redemption City. My name is Mark. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, I am a member here at the church. If um, you are familiar at all with the church calendar, you may know that we presently sit smack dab in the middle of the season of Epiphany. Now, what is Epiphany? Well, the church calendar records the earthly ministry of Jesus. It tracks along with the earthly ministry of Jesus. So it begins with the Advent season, wherein we are longing for the coming of our Messiah, and then moves into the 12 days of Christmas, wherein we celebrate the arrival, the birth of our Messiah. And then between the season of Christmas and the season of Lent, wherein Jesus begins his descent into suffering, we get the season of Epiphany, the season that we are in now. Epiphany literally means appearance or manifestation. And the purpose of the season is to highlight that God made himself manifest in Jesus. That God appeared on the earth in the person of Jesus. We see God in the face of Jesus Christ. And there is special attention paid during Epiphany to the baptism of Jesus. When a voice declared from the heavens, this is my beloved son. This was God revealing that his divine nature is manifest in Jesus. Now, the season of Epiphany often gets overlooked compared to the more well-known seasons of Advent and Christmas and Lent and Easter. And part of the reason for that, I think, is because Christians understand more readily our need for Jesus to come, be born into the earth, to suffer, to die, to rise. We understand that we need him to come save us, to die for our sins, to conquer our enemy of death, to give us a hope after the grave. And of course, these are precious hopes, precious truths. And Jesus indeed did all these things. He indeed did come and rescue us from our sin, ransom us from our sin. He did conquer death at the grave. If you're here this morning, just take a moment to meet anyone who may be struggling under the weight of sin, maybe bowed down by the weight of sin, maybe overwhelmed by something that you have done or something that's been done to you. You need to know these realities that Jesus has indeed swallowed up the destruction, the guilt, and the shame of sin, both your sin and the sin that's been committed against you. He has swallowed it up into himself and he has buried it in the ground such that it no longer has power over us in the least, does not have power to accuse us, does not have power to enslave us, does not have power to decreate us. We are free. We have been set free from sin. We're free to fail. We're free to learn. We're free to grow. We're free to stumble forward in the grace of Christ. Grace upon grace has been given to us. 
Well, what more then do we need? So what is epiphany all about? Well, the case that I want to make this morning is that it gets even better than all of that. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm praying that you would come and meet those in this room that wrestle, that struggle with the whole concept of what it is to be a person of faith. Praying that you would come and meet the weary and that you would come and meet the proud among us, all of us, and that you would teach us by your spirit what it is to live in you. We ask it in your name. Amen. Last month in early December, my grandmother video called me from a hospice center. She was nearing the end of her life, and um, it was a very special moment. Got to interact with her for about 10 minutes or so. She's a very special lady. I walked around the house making sure she interacted with each one of my kids. She took the time to interact with me as she neared the end of her life, even though she has 22 grandchildren. She took the time to interact with my children, even though she has 40 great-grandchildren. I've got a picture, actually, of my grandma. I think Susie can put that up on the screen. This is a picture of my grandmother kissing one of her 40 great-grandchildren. She was a person who loved her family, who cared for her family. Uh, I actually have another picture as well from about 40 years earlier. Uh, This picture features yours truly, believe it or not, Um, as an infant, a newborn, and my grandmother Joanne there holding me in her arms and caring for me. Um, Like I said, I walked around the house. I made sure she interacted with each one of my kids. It was a brief conversation, about 10 minutes long, uh, but it was meaningful in part because four days later, my mom called me in mid-December to let me know that my grandmother had indeed died just two days before her 98th birthday. On the uh, last night of her life, my mom reported to me, they were all playing games. My grandma was sitting with my mom and some of my aunts and uncles playing games. It was always Scrabble with my grandma. And she was staying up longer than she typically did at that point. She had reached a point in her life where she would get very tired if she was out of her bed for even five, ten minutes. But somehow she was staying at the table a bit longer on that particular night. And when she finally asked my mom and my aunt to take her into her bed, she said to them, I'm so tired, but I just don't want to leave the party. They took her in to lay her down in her bed, and that night, actually in the early morning hours, around 2 or 3 a.m., my cousin Elliot heard my grandma ring the buzzer for someone to come and check on her, and he went over, and she asked him, do you hear that singing? He said, no, no, grandma, what singing? And she said, well, normally when you're at a concert, you sit up high and look down at the performer's but these singers are up above me. And when I'm done with this song, when they're done with the song, I'm going to go up and join them, she said. She passed away in her sleep just a few hours after that. My grandma, Joanne, is without question the best example 
of a person that I've known of Christian faith, the embodiment of Christian faith. She poured out her life in kindness and service for 98 years. Before my grandpa died, which was about 25 years ago, the two of them founded a senior service facility in their town of Deer Lodge, Montana, to care for a largely forgotten aging population there. And my grandma would ride her bike until she was in her late 80s to the senior center to play piano for the seniors and to serve a meal there. She kept going even after she couldn't ride a bike. She went until she was 95. She herself was a senior who should have been served and cared for, and yet she was going and playing piano for 75-year-olds in her late 90s. Her faith was, it was never grandiose. It was never spectacular, but it was rugged. It was durable. It was something that you could count on, and people did. Many, many people did. When I was a brand new Christian, as a 19-year-old, and I was looking for models of faith, of what it meant to be a Christian, my grandma provided that to me. You know what she was? She was a manifestation of the life of God on the earth. She was a little epiphany, a little Christ, a Christian. And I share all that about her life and death, really to provide some vision to you of what epiphany is. Last week, Pastor Mike preached out of the Gospel of Mark on the transfiguration of Jesus, this moment when Jesus manifested his divine glory on a mountaintop, when he shone with divine radiance. And much like at his baptism, at the transfiguration, a voice from heaven declared, this is my son. And then that voice of the Father added, listen to him. In other words, do what he says, walk behind him, follow his steps, live his life. And as Mike taught, suddenly the manifestations of Moses and Elijah, who had appeared in this glorious moment alongside the transfigured Jesus, they vanished. As soon as the voice from heaven instructed those in attendance, Peter, James, and John, to do what Jesus says, to listen to him, Moses and Elijah vanished as though God was saying the law, represented by Moses, And the prophets, represented by Elijah, are now all consummated in my son. They're all now fulfilled in my son. He is the law fleshed out. He is the prophetic word of God made flesh. He is our revelation of who God is, our instruction of what God asks and our direction of where God leads. But, as we pick up the text today, Jesus comes down from the mountain, and he encounters a rather troubling scene. His disciples are there at the foot of the mountain, the nine disciples that didn't go up with him, and they are arguing with the Jewish religious leaders, with the scribes, And when Jesus tries to get to the bottom of this argument, he discovers that it started when the disciples were unable to cast out an evil spirit that was possessing a young boy. A desperate father had come looking for Jesus to heal his possessed son, and with Jesus up on the mountain, 
the disciples had stepped in and attempted to work this miracle in his stead. And, of course, we know the disciples had cast out demons before. This wasn't something new to them. They'd actually been sent out by Jesus to perform this very kind of miracle, and they had done so successfully before. But for some reason, they failed this time. And the scribes, these religious leaders, they leapt at this opportunity to impugn the disciples' credibility, to impugn the credibility of Jesus by extension. They'd been waiting to discredit Jesus for some time because Jesus was a threat. He was a threat to their religious system and by extension then a threat to their power, a threat to their position, a threat to their prestige, a threat to everything that they had worked for all of their lives. So with no regard to this desperate father and his very sick demon-possessed son, the scribes, the religious leaders, pick a fight Pick a religious fight with the disciples trying to prove that Jesus isn't credible. Try to imagine the insensitivity of that. If you were witnessing pastors praying for a desperately sick boy at the behest of a desperate father and unsuccessfully finding healing, and then other pastors picking a religious fight in front of this grieving, now grieving family. Well, when Jesus arrives... The father wants to turn the conversation quickly back to the pressing matter at hand. He's not interested in this religious fight. He came to see his boy healed. He tells Jesus just that. I came looking for healing for my son. Your disciples failed. And then in verse 19 of chapter 9 of Mark, we get Jesus' response to this situation. And he said to them, O faithless generation." How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring the boy to me. Jesus seems to express here what could only be called exasperation. Now, what's striking is the disciples, they didn't wander off into false teaching here. They didn't confuse the message of the kingdom or abandon their responsibilities What they did was to attempt to cast out a demon in the very manner that Jesus had taught them, and they lacked the power to get it done. So why this exasperation? What's so deserving of Jesus being exasperated? I mean, I recently taught my son how to operate a drill and an impact driver, but it would be unfair. It would be ridiculous of me If for some reason he weren't strong enough to drive some particularly long lag screw to be exasperated with him, he's learning. That requires patience and attention and care. So, Jesus, why so harsh? What's going on here? In the face of his disciples' failure, Jesus laments a faithless generation. It seems so harsh that commentators as reputable as John Calvin have postulated that Jesus here, in fact, is talking to the scribes, that he's aiming his rebuke at the scribes. Well, with all due respect to Brother John and those students who attend a university named after him, that simply doesn't hold water. (laughs) Scribes did not fail to cast out 
the demon from this boy. And overwhelmingly, commentators agree that Jesus' rebuke, his response here, is toward his disciples. So why so harsh? Well, we get a clue in the following verses. They bring the boy to Jesus, and the boy immediately begins convulsing, foaming at the mouth. He falls on the ground. Jesus asked the father, how long has this spirit possessed your boy in this way? And the father answers from the time that he was very young, verse 22, and it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. You can hear the desperation in the father's words. He brought his son to Jesus. He expected Jesus to be there with his disciples. He had some measure, some sliver of hope that there might be some chance for healing, but now his experience with the disciples and this subsequent religious argument from the scribes has made him unsure if healing is even possible. He's beginning to lose hope. He says, if you can, please help And Jesus answers, if you can, he repeats the Father's words incredulous. Verse 23, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Come on. All things? All things are possible for one who believes? Who can accept that? The memorial service for my grandma um, was just about two weeks ago now in her little town of Montana. I flew out there after work on a Friday, and on Saturday morning, we were up early, and we went to her little Episcopalian church where she was a member for many decades. We got there early to get ready to set up for an 11 o'clock service, 11 a.m. service. By 10.30, the chapel was full. People from throughout the town pouring in, getting there early because they knew there would be no seats available, coming to honor this woman who had served them for decades in this small little town. My uncle Doug delivered the eulogy, and all he did really was share stories that people had told them of how Joanne's life had impacted them. One story he he shared was uh, from my cousin, cousin of mine, uh, who had tried to help my grandma stand up off a couch a few years earlier when she had started struggling to move and get around. He tried to help her up off a couch, and she said, no, life is movement. She always had this kind of simple, no-nonsense way of putting things that really stuck with you. Life is movement. That's exactly right. When my grandpa died in the 90s, my grandma didn't just fade into oblivion. She was already in her 70s, but she really lived a second life at that point. She traveled the world, always serving, working as a teacher among impoverished youth in Honduras, as an English instructor in China. She prayed every day and kept moving, kept living. When Jesus says, all things are possible for one who believes, he isn't saying Pretend that you have more faith than you do. 
He isn't saying, conjure up more faith out of thin air. He's not saying, believe harder, you wimp. What Jesus is saying here is, there is such a thing as a faith that moves mountains. Saying there's such a thing as a faith that moves mountains. And what's more, there is one who believes. Faith is not something that you and I muscle up. It's not something we can measure ourselves by because it's not something we accomplish. It's not ours to achieve. Part of what makes my grandma's life so extraordinary, so remarkable, is that she had no idea that it was. She never was out for acclaim. She wasn't seeking credit. She lived the life that was given. I wrote her a card once in my early 20s, kind of embarrassed by it, but I told her, Grandma, you're the only person I know who has the courage to be an absolute nobody. I thought that was a compliment for sure. She would have blushed to hear all the fuss I'm making over her life today. She didn't want to claim. She didn't want credit. She just wanted to move in the life that was freely supplied. The epiphany, the life of Jesus, is that life. That's the life that we're given. That's the life that we're freely given. This is so important, and yet it's so often overlooked, even by Christians. Jesus lived in the fullness of what it is to be human. That is, he lived in the full dependence and trust of his Father, of God in heaven. And he doesn't then turn to us and say, now you craft a life just as full. Now you craft a life just as meaningful. I've done it. Now you do it. Good luck. No. He says, now you live in what I built. Live in the life that I made. Live in my life. I already finished the work. I already loved my enemies and healed the sick and cared for the poor. I already prayed without ceasing and suffered without losing heart. I already measured up for you. I already believed for you. I'm inviting you to step into a finished work. Jesus wasn't exasperated with his disciples because they weren't strong. He was exasperated with them for thinking they were. He never invited them to lean on their own strength, their own faith. He invited them to lean on him, to borrow every breath from him. What does that mean? The father of the sick boy in the story shows us. Verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. This is the cry of true discipleship, of a disciple of Jesus. I'm all in, Lord but I don't have what it takes. I can't measure up. My faith cannot get the job done. Help me. Help me. Help me. Some of you 
sitting here this morning, I think tragically, have disqualified yourself from life with God because you know you can't measure up. You know that you're unworthy. You know that you fall short. That's the very thing that qualifies you. You're just his type. He came for you. I believe, help my unbelief. I want God, I want the fullness of life, but I'm too weak to get myself there. Yes, now we're talking. Conversely, some in this room, consider yourself qualified. You've given careful thought to the resolve of your faith and you've put a lot of trust in it. You're convinced you'll never waver. You have confidence in your piety, in your discipline, in your commitment, confidence in yourself to manufacture an authentic life, a life of faith. That kind of confidence disqualifies you. The very thing you seek. If you're anything like me, you probably swerve into both of these ditches every day. Trusting my own strength when all is well, despairing that there's no hope when my efforts fail. Both are lies, damnable lies. Discipleship is desperate business. I believe. Help my unbelief. Look at the unbelief that's present here in this passage The unbelief of the scribes, so confident in their own religious system, they can't even see the evil of picking a religious fight in front of a suffering family. Have you ever so wanted to be right that you ignored people who needed care? Have you ever put proving a point above kindness? That's just the unbelief of fear. We don't want to be exposed as frauds, so we fight, maintain our reputation, our image, our good name. How about the unbelief of the disciples? After hearing the father's heartfelt cry, Jesus comes, he heals this boy, casts out this demon, commands the unclean spirit out of him, takes the boy by the hand, shows that he is well, and then he takes his disciples Aside and explains to them just why it was that they failed. Verse 29, he said to them, This kind, this spirit cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Jesus says you can't do it by yourself. The power to heal is from God alone. The unbelief of the disciples is the unbelief of independence. Have you ever thought you could handle something on your own? You could handle marriage on your own. I've got a generous spirit, a winsome personality, and I look pretty good with my shirt off. I got this. You, know? you said that, not me. <laughs> or how about your relationship with your parents or your siblings or your friends or your coworkers? There is no power in your winsomeness, in your conversation skills, in your kind personality. Whole life is in Christ alone. Everything else is dust. 
Even the father in this story has unbelief. He acknowledges it, unlike the others. He has the unbelief of suffering. It's that weariness that comes from having tried it all. His boy is seemingly incurable, and he doubts whether anyone or anything can help. Have you ever been there? On the brink of giving up that there is such a thing as a better tomorrow, because the pain is just too constant, too overwhelming. Maybe there's no such thing as healing. Hear me. When Jesus of Nazareth was betrayed, when he was falsely accused, when he was abandoned, when he was tortured, when he was hung on a tree, he did not lose heart. He cried out, Into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. Jesus didn't just come to die and rise for us. He also came to live for us the life of faith. He believed for us in all the ways that we fail to believe. His faith is ours to walk in. It's a fully formed faith, forged in the fire, tested in the fire. It's a faith that does not lose heart. So take heart, you weary soul, if you find yourself weak in faith, even overwhelmed by doubt or unbelief or fear. If you are in that place, slump. Slump into the sure, unbreakable faith of Christ. Go limp into his arms and see if he will not hold you. How do I do that? Well, we're back to epiphany. Appearance manifestation. The life of God appeared in Christ in the first century, and it appears now in his people, like my grandma. There are people in the church, people in this church, who depend on the faith of Christ. All Christians do at some point, at times. And you can accept the invitation of Jesus to lean on him by leaning on your brothers and sisters. If you don't even know where your faith is, if you've misplaced it, if you've lost it in a sea of confusion and doubt, you're not even sure, do I even have faith anymore? Don't wander off into oblivion. Let the faith of Christ, fleshed out in your brothers and sisters, carry you. You don't need to muster something up. You don't need to keep up appearances. You don't need to say things that sound hollow anymore, pretend that you're somewhere that you're not. Nothing depends on your strength. He is strong for you. In fact, his power is made perfect in your weakness. So be weak. Lean on one another you find yourself able to admit to yourself or to others or maybe only to God that you are indeed weak, be encouraged. It takes faith to admit weakness. His faith, 
not yours, his faith. You can admit weakness. His faith is at work in you, and his faith does not fail. Sorry, it's all over for you. Life is breaking in. Movement is sure to follow. You are incurably Christian. A good friend of mine wrote a song capturing the heart of what I'm speaking about. She and her husband were worship leaders at the church in Chicago where I pastored for about a decade. She lost her husband to cancer, a good friend of mine, uh, in early 2015, very suddenly. And later that year, she wrote this song called Help My Unbelief. She took an old John Newton song. She adapted the lyrics, added some verses, wrote a whole new chorus and a new arrangement. But this song became an anthem for our grieving congregation. And it met the doubters and the weary among us with words that allowed them to hold on, to lean on Christ for all that he is, not just the one who came to ransom us from our sins and secure life after death, but the one in whom we live and move and have our being. We're going to sing this song in a moment. The band was gracious enough to learn it at my request. And if you are a disciple of Jesus, no matter whether you feel strong in faith or weak in faith or somewhere in between, no matter whether you have been following for decades or have just chosen to follow for the first time today, I want to invite you to sing, to lean on one another as we sing. Lord, we thank you that you don't leave it to us to figure out how to walk with you, that you don't put it on us to concoct faith or to muster up enough faith to walk with you. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, for what he has accomplished, for the life that he lived, for the invitation that he now gives us to step into that life, to live in the fullness of that life. Lord, would you send your spirit now, even now, to impart his faith to us. That we would know that we are one with him. That his life is our life. That his record is our record. That his freedom is our freedom. Goodness is our goodness. Goodness. 